The Game of Zen explores the often overlooked ways in which professional, personal, and spiritual growth are interrelated. We dive deep into the life teachings of the Buddha and the mindfulness practices of Zen, revealing how they can help us dramatically expand our possibilities for wholehearted work, life, and play. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Game of Zen podcast. This is Scott checking in from Philadelphia, PA. We have a really special guest today. I'm excited. Paul, how you doing? And tell us about our guest. I'm doing really well, Scott. It's a nice day here in Boulder, Colorado. And I am super excited to have our guest today, Mark Eckhart. Um, Mark is uh, currently sitting in Europe one of his two locations where he runs his businesses, the other being the West Coast of the U.S. Uh, great to have you, Mark. Say hello. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Thanks, Scott. And hello, everyone. Hope everybody's doing well. Yeah. Mark is currently the co-founder and CEO of the Common Organization, which is a worldwide community of businesses and professionals which accelerates the launch and growth of businesses that take care of the planet and all the creatures on it, and also the founder and CEO of One Million Truths, which is a science-based nonprofit initiative dedicated to racial healing and reconciliation. Mark is also a former professional drummer and musical composer and an ordained Zen Buddhist priest. Mark is also a good friend of mine I've known for a number of years and has been a really big influence on my professional career and also in my spiritual path. So I'm really thrilled to have you here, Mark, today to share a little bit with our listeners about your path in spirituality and in business. Um, I want to kick it off and just invite you to share about your path. What has uh, brought you to this place in your, your professional and personal life? Thank you, Paul. That's such a big question. <laughs> um, I, I think the through line is that from a very early age, actually the age of eight, I just had a sense that I'm here to work with people to make a difference in the world. And, and, and being aware of that through line and, and that purpose has taken me through music. It's taken me through media and technology. It's taken me to social enterprise and impact work. And now on the forefront, I'm on the forefront of racial healing and reconciliation efforts. So it's been a wonderful journey and it's been really diverse, but there is absolutely a through line to it. Yeah, good. It sounds like you've, you, you, you were um, passionate about creativity from an early age and, and expression and um, also justice. And that that are those are those the through lines that that have carried you from from your youth? I believe so. So if you ask my mother, she'll tell you that I was a drummer from the beginning, and <laughs> she <laughs> she has the pots and pans, the banged up pots and pans to prove it to this day. So if you ask her, that's what she's going to say. Um, the justice uh, through line emerged in and around 2020 when the world was suddenly thrust into needing to respond to what happened to George Floyd in the ensuing protest. And um, I had never done much work in the space of justice. Um, certainly, I was aware of how people of all races and ethnicities are treated throughout the world. But that particular moment in time, I think for most of us <laughs> in, in the States, was really, really, it just kind of woke us up. It was eye-awakening. Um, and by leaning in and starting to just explore the whole notions of race and ethnicity a whole lot deeper uh, and kind of connecting the dots uh, in terms of my experiences throughout my lifetime that led me to justice. And what I ultimately discovered, or I, it took me so far back that I realized that race and ethnicity dynamics were determining the trajectory, trajectory of my life while I was in my mother's womb. Mm -hmm. So... Your, mm -hmm. your audience won't know from looking at me, but I'm half Italian. Mm -hmm. And my birth mother uh, realized when she became pregnant with me 
that she would be rejected by her family and close community members if she were to have and raise a child of mixed race. Mm -hmm. So that's a thread and a through line that I didn't become aware of until you know a few years ago and in, in doing the work of healing and reconciliation. That's that's really amazing. And what I would like to go back to to your earlier days of when you got interested in Zen and Buddhism and how because you, you said you started at a very young age thinking about this, but how did you that progression happen when you became an adult? I uh, without being too self-referential, I had a lot of success when I was, you know, teens in my twenties and uh, into thirties. It was effortless, and little by little, I started to feel and have the experience that producing the same kind of results was getting harder and harder, and the quality of my relationships were getting worse and worse. And eventually, I found my place myself at a place where I was really, really stuck. And I did a lot of things from therapy to reading books. Uh, somebody convinced me <laughs> into doing a series of 13 colonics that had certain highs and lows. I mean, I really was desperate because um, I had this just diminishing experience of myself. And unfortunately, I met a man who was planning to be a priest at the Santa Monica Gun Center. He heard my experience and he said, we're having an intro next Saturday. It's six hours. You may find what you're looking for. And the moment I walked through the door at the Zen Center, I knew I was home and I knew I was going to be there for a long period of time. That's that's really cool. So and then what happened next? <laughs> I love this story. Keep going. <laughs> well, my practice started in little bite-sized pieces. It was show up on a Tuesday morning and do Zazen, participate in Zazen for 15 minutes with the Sangha. And then that expanded to a 30 minute period. And then I would leave. And then I would go to, uh, you know, maybe do that twice in a week. And then I started attending um, practice on Sundays. And very quickly, I just made a commitment to go all in on the practice and the training. And probably in the course of two months, I was there essentially full-time. At my peak, I was at the Zen Center 35 to 40 hours a week. That's great. It's, it's, uh, I, wanna, I wanna jump in and just reflect how, uh, how similar our paths were in the early days of our, of our practice, Mark, and, and I never realized how similar our kind of initial entries into Zen practice were. Um, like you, I had a lot of you know, early success like you, I hit these, this kind of whitewater and cross currents and confusion and even depression in my life. Things that were working were no longer working for me, you know, even though outwardly it was actually quite successful, but inwardly it wasn't. Um, I didn't find myself centered. And that's what brought me to Zen. And I had that same progression of just getting more and more into it. I had the same experience of feeling at home. Kind of the first time I walked into a real Zendo, just, oh, wow, this is it. Yeah. And I knew there was an inner commitment that I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life in one form or another. Um, and then, um, and then that, that, that was the commitment that kind of carried forward. And it's, um, I think our path is a little bit uncommon because we met that, um, we, we found our home, our spiritual home at a relatively early age. It was the late twenties for me. Um, but I find a lot of people and maybe even most people, particularly in the U S they face that kind of junction, maybe a little bit later in their lives, you know, in their in their 30s or 40s or 50s, because a lot of the a lot of the focus does tend to go on the the external accomplishment in our culture and not so much on the spiritual development, right? We don't really have a good language for spiritual development. So then then they get, you know, people get to a certain age with a relative amount of success, you know, oftentimes quite a bit of accomplishment. And then they, then they hit those spiritual questions about themselves and then they jump in to a path like this. And of course, that's beautiful. Everybody has their own path. It doesn't have to be anything in particular. Although, as I like to say, it is important to eventually get there because <laughs> if you do bypass, you know, that, that spiritual path, um, your life isn't going to be as deep and fulfilling as, as it could, as it, as it could be. So, so, so you've, you've, you've had a really deep practice for, you know, decades here. 
And are there are there specific ways that in in the latter stages of your career, being the CEO and the founder of several organizations, multinational you know organizations, where you can very overtly point to my this my practice right here is allowing me to to succeed. Yes, uh, I'm gonna take one step back and hopefully draw a connection and answer your question very specifically. The one thing I connected with immediately uh, with practice and at the center was a part of Zen practice and training that really doesn't get addressed or mentioned often. There's, you hear in culture, a lot of references and comments about kind of the softer side, but there's a whole other side to our practice, as you well know. Uh, Paul, that is about performance. Mm -hmm. And that side um, really resonated with me as somebody who had spent thousands of hours alone in a room mastering the art of drumming and somebody who had played competitive sports, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that is the part that I think has really empowered me in addition to the softer side of the training and practice in my role as a CEO. Because I approach how a, an executive or an entrepreneur performs from that perspective and then leverage our training to kind of unlock the gates that need to be unlocked for people to be expressed and more attuned and in alignment with who they truly are. You know, hearing you guys, it, I see a lot of similarities, too, from just from knowing Paul the last couple of years. And I'm, by the way, a very happy student of Paul's since about 2020 and I've learned so much, but I also want to talk about like the shift when you went, you know, you learned all this stuff individually and you practiced and then you actually put it into action. So when was the first time that you were in some sort of business enterprise where you're like, okay, I'm going to bring my Zen training into this and, and it helped her. I think it was 2009 or 2010, maybe even 2008. Um, I started to feel like I want to bring this training. I want to bring this particular type of understanding in, into my work. And so I started to just consult. I started working with musicians and artists who were stuck in their career uh, and some other friends who were working within corporations who needed some support as well. And I was very successful very effective in helping them move through whatever it is that they felt was important to them. And so I, that prompted me to um, kind of attach myself to the coattails of three neuroscientists in Southern California. And it was at that point that I began to kind of merge Eastern philosophy and practice with Western science um, and modality. And as I did that, um, I caught the attention of a small boutique consultancy that was doing visionary strategy work. And at that time, they just happened to be landing clients that were very high profile. Some of the, the top creatives and designers in the world and actors and really successful entrepreneurs and filmmakers, et cetera, et cetera. And so I poured all of my training and my research into those efforts and was really, really successful. And because of my performance, I was selected to lead the strategic process that resulted in Common. So I met Alex Bogusky, who's a co-founder, and Rob Shuham, who's a co-founder, because they said yes to our process and traveled from Boulder, Colorado to Los Angeles. And I just had the good fortune to lead them through the process. And here we are 14 years later. It, it's really fascinating, Mark. You, you identified the, um, th this performance aspect that comes out of Zen training, which is kind of taps into the the samurai spirit, if you will, the, the inner ethic and discipline of the samurai that really is incredibly responsive, incredibly um, in, in touch with deeper, deeper intentions. You could say life or death matters, right? To bring that kind of intensity to bear. Um, un, unencumbered by um, self-centered concerns, right? Or ideas. <laughs> about how things should be, right? That, that samurai spirit is just meeting the moment with what is needed in the moment 
with intensity and a kind of an all inness, right? To really go go for it. And I and I think is is that what you're what you're talking about here in terms of that performative energetic that Zen has given you? Yes, absolutely. And from that place, what I discovered in terms of that ethic and that discipline and that ability to just really step in, I, I found a tremendous um, capacity for caring. And mm. I actually realized that that level of engagement and being was a very profound expression of, of caring. And it was the kind of, um, I guess, energetic that I experienced to be very effective in cutting through people's suffering mm. <laughs> just to go straight there. And mm. so uh, through skillful means, if I use kind of a technical phrase, um, I, I came to really trust in, in the training and the ability to really go to that place and do so in service of evoking true care and compassion in, in, in just being of service to people and helping them pursue the things again that matter most. Are there certain Zen principles that you think are, are very core to these things that you work on or do you sort of tailor depending on what the audience might be? Well, one principle is all principles. One precept is all precepts. Nice. Um, so not elevating yourself over others. This ladders into all of the others. Um, and, and so I find that they illuminate and present themselves um, whenever you're uh, engaging with a person. And one may show up, one precept may show up first, but as soon as you tease on that, all of them show up. And so what, what, what starts to become very clear is the need for a holistic approach. And, and ensuring that you're not doing things in a one-dimensional way. And so it takes, and I would encourage everybody to really embrace the notion of dexterity and flexibility and responsiveness and fluidness. And so if there's a heaviness or a stuckness to any, any form of engagement, then, then a good place to go to immediately is the precepts. <laughs> And see and see where where you might not be in alignment with them or expressing them or in integrity with them, one and all at the same time. Well, that leads me to my my next question, which I've been really dying to talk more with you about. And I want to I want to precede it with a the short story of our first meeting when I came to you as a uh, prospective uh, client for your own coaching. And uh, as a um, member of Common, which I joined uh, with my own consultancy back uh, four years ago, I think it was now. And uh, I was so excited to meet you. And in our very first meeting, you talked about how your life and your career was informed by your vows, by your Buddhist vows. And of course, I had never met another high-functioning, high-level professional like, like yourself who said that. Even in even in our first meetings, of course, you knew I was a Zen teacher, so I think I think you knew you had a receptive audience to that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was it was so oh, it was so inspiring and, and encouraging me to hear you say that. And I wonder if you would share how have those vows informed your career, and how do they continue to form your career, even on a you know a nitty gritty day to day basis? Okay. Um. Without my vows, being involved in business and being an entrepreneur would have been and would be rudderless. And that would then put me in position to attach to certain, certain things and principles, um, certain possibilities that might not be constructive and might be actually unhealthy and damaging in the end. I, I think I would have likely just gravitated to let me make as much money as I can and run over as many people as I can in, in pursuing that end. When you take a vow, at least in a, in a Buddhist context, the lineage going back thousands of years switches on inside you. And, and Paul, I know that I've shared the moment of, of having the shoulder piece placed on me with the knot being tied formally by a senior student 
and and literally having the visceral experience of the lineage switching on and just feeling it throughout my body and up and down my spine and i and i knew from that moment going forward as we were proceeding through the entire ceremony that something had gotten activated and and it's like getting married once you make that commitment there's no turning it off regardless if you're wearing the formal robes or not there's no turning it off and for me the vow to end needless suffering just to say it succinctly is alive and well and guiding me constantly constantly and it's the thing that allows me to sit in the extreme discomfort that comes with any kind of enterprise and pursuit and be grounded and and feel safe in even the darkest moments there was a period for about five years where i was in a really really tough place call it depression call it loss i'd lost all connection to meaning in life i couldn't you know regardless of what i was doing i couldn't get meaning in life to, to switch back on and to spin up but i knew because of my vows and my training that i could allow myself to go really, really, really far down and into the deep, 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 deep darkness because the mm -hmm. vows were there and they were alive. And I knew that they would not, they were unyielding. And it was just a matter of time before they propelled me out. That's beautiful. fantastic. Yeah, that was beautiful. I really love your description of when you put the feeling you had, uh, visceral feeling, that's, that's really cool. When you were not in a great place, though, how when you started to come out of it and your vows were lifting you up, did that strengthen your your resolve and your understanding of things? And did that lead you more to do things outwardly? It did. It did. At the center of that experience and what's called an evolution was a coming into understanding who I am in a way that I never had before. And there's two moments in my life that are specific to knowing oneself. Um, there was the moment when I was 40 years old and my wife was pregnant with our first daughter where I learned that I'm of mixed race. And up until that moment, I had just assumed that my lineage and my DNA and genetics are just that of the typical African-American. When I learned that that was not true, Wow. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing. Small self identity was just gone. Mm. And having that experience was like, oh, okay, <laughs> this, this is important. Now, fast forward to coming out of the moment where I was in that darkness, I, what I came to and what I heard in a, at first in a very faint voice was, I'm black. I'm a black American and that's okay. And then that, that voice got stronger and stronger yeah. and louder. So I have both. I have what we would refer to as an identity that allows me to function in the world, but I have the understanding of what that is and how to some degree it's false and act absolutely true at the same time. This is powerful stuff, huh, Scott? Yeah, yeah this is really cool. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I hope this is what you signed me up for. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. This, the, the both andness of, um, of ourselves, you know, cause this, this does apply to everybody, right? We have, we have certain identities that are uh, inherited, um, and that we are conditioned to, to see ourselves as, um, but we're all called within our lives and our work to investigate those and to, and to not allow those to fix us within our behaviors, mm -hmm. because that's where I love I love your succinct expression of the precepts to end needless suffering. Not all suffering; suffering is a part of life, but there is something that is needless suffering that we can do something about. Your 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 account of just um, going into that darkness and then coming out of that darkness, and it, it does seem like there there is such rich treasure actually found within that darkness. I mean, I guess I, I want to ask you, you, you wouldn't have it any other way, I imagine. And I'd like to invite you to 
share more about one mil one million truths and what you're doing with that because you are you are at the top level of these incredibly high powered and high purpose ventures both with common and with one million truths so i, I invite you to share a bit about the both of those ventures and the the inspiration for those the personal inspiration for those what's what's kind of motivating and continues to drive you forward with those uh, sure uh, i'd like to begin my answer by saying i would not have the good fortune of opportunity that i have if it were not for my training because my ability to be in relationship with other human beings would have not been sufficient i probably would have been very alone and um certainly not functioning well at all without without my training um so the inspiration for one million truths really just came from my own life experience you know, dating back to being adopted because i'm a child or a person of mixed race to just a lifetime of experiences with really painful traumatic events um it culminated in and around 2020 and it was at that point i started getting stalked and chased in my own neighborhood and and a gentleman threatened to kill me and had several encounters with private security personnel. And that really pushed me to the edge of my training and understanding at that point. And so I leaned in and I simply began sharing my experiences. I started sharing my truth and my story and uh, not doing it in a way that was blaming or accusing anyone or shaming anyone of anything, but just saying, this is what my life is and this is what I've been going through. And people responded to it positively. Some were quite shocked and surprised and appalled um, and concerned about my well-being, but overall it was a very powerful, loving response. And so that just served as the initial impetus for doing what we're doing. And then the first thing I did after just sharing my story was to invite other people to do the same. And soon after doing that, I started hearing consistencies in the experiences people shared about their efforts to enact change. The CEO of a major media corporation in the U.S. interrupted a meeting to say, look, thousands of people raised their hands during the protests, claiming that they had a solution to this problem and dynamic. None of us do. Talk to hundreds and hundreds of young people who are actively working to build bridges in our neighborhoods and communities who were exhausted and many of them were broke and struggling financially. And it just became clear that something else above and beyond what the U.S. has known throughout its history and what came to be in the 50s and 60s during the civil rights movement, it just became clear that something else was impacting people's ability to be in healthy relationship with one another and to resolve differences that trace all the way back to the beginnings of the country. So that was the inspiration. I wonder, uh, you know, when I learned about the Buddha originally, uh, he was the most anti-racist human ever. He, everyone was equal, and you know, he that that kind of thought process was always through a lot of a lot of the teachings. And so, I guess when you started training in all that, you probably saw even more, and you lived, you know, the racial upbringing that you did. Like it probably strengthened your resolve to do something about it because of becoming Zen Buddhist. It did. Uh, first, I had to get through the fact that those experiences delivered me to a point where my, my education and my understanding and my skills were insufficient. Uh, that was kind of the first big hurdle to get through that I really didn't understand the dynamic between different races and ethnicities much at all. And then most of what I was reacting to in operating from the stuff I just inherited through media and through family and through community, I'd never really investigated it beyond my, you know, the wounds and the, the challenging experiences. And so as I, as I came out of that, it um, opened me up to science. Uh, I've been working with an incredible group of academics and scholars. It introduced me to uh, the whole field and study of conflict and, and that ultimately is the track that I've dedicated my life to at that point, helping people build enterprises and launch initiatives that reduce the amount of polarization, divide and conflict in our country and throughout the world, while at the same time being 
profitable and successful. Love it. That's excellent. Yeah. Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm being drawn to an area that might be sensitive, but I'm going to go there. Um, you're, you're a big systems thinker. Um, and we've had conversations about late stage capitalism, about diversity, equity, and inclusion, about perverse incentives of um, our, our culture and our society, about you know chaotic uh, systemic forces that are very difficult and appear to be heading in very dangerous territory. Um, in a lot of ways. So I guess I, I guess I want to invite you to comment on all of that and ask you if you're hopeful about where we might be going as a global civilization. I am hopeful, without a doubt. And we have some real challenges ahead of us that require, require a whole nother level of understanding, call it consciousness and coordination capacity. Um, I and, and, and a key component of this is understanding the dynamics of conflict. So as the effects of climate change and global warming play out, there will be more reason for people to find themselves in conflict as people have to move, as economies are up, upended, and so on and so forth. And so how do we, how do we navigate ch a changing world and circumstance um, in a manner that does not exacerbate conflict dynamics. This brings me to an understanding of crisis, because I, whether it's, it's, it's climate change, global warming, biodiversity loss, species extinction, human migration, changing world order due to my, uh, macroeconomics, and so on and so forth, um, you know, I think it's important that we, we understand what's, what's at the source of that. And, this is where Zachary Stein's definition of crisis is incredibly helpful. Um, he defines crisis as a breakdown or a crisis in education, uh, meaning we simply, at this point, don't have the education systems in place to really address global warming efficiently and succinctly. And you can look at that playing out across all these different areas of problem and crisis and the root of it is a breakdown in education. And so what's necessary to get to kind of re-educating ourselves or creating new systems of education? Well, the thing that's in, way, in the way, at least from my perspective, is conflict. And so I find conflict to be a dire distraction from being able to get at the underlying source of these these issues that are so so important for us to address i appreciate that you're hopeful mark i i am too and i think that part of the problem today is that we focus way too much on the news and social media which is not real life and it creates polarization and we think that everything is you know but really if you things are are not that bad and we have come a long way there's a lot wrong with this country that we need to fix but if you look at our history it used to be a lot worse in a lot of areas. So yeah. we have, the, so that's the first thing. The second thing is we do have the ability to change. And what we need, this is why people like you are so important because you're putting a lot of stuff out there that people need to hear and that will propel them to change because you know, you're coming at it from a real great place that you just wanna help end needless suffering. I love that too. And so what more can we do? <laughs> You know what can us what can we do to really help you? Let's start there. <laughs> well, thanks for that, Scott. Uh, there's a lot of ways people can help. Um, I'll start very generally, and then I'll get specific. Uh, the first thing all of us can do is celebrate the people and the things that are working. We don't do near enough of that. And it's, it's hard to elevate those things that are working and are successful above just the noise and media and um, social media platforms. But if there's people in your life, you know, with an arm's reach, they're doing great work, help amplify, help share the work that they're doing with the people around you. Um, we know that uh, punishing people now, of course, there's laws that people need to <laughs> adhere to if you're going to be part of a functioning society. 
But punishing people uh, for doing the wrong thing is just not the way to go. And that's why Ludwith celebrates successes. Um, we need to take a long-term perspective um, in the world of peace building and conflict resolution. They think in terms of generations, so increments of 20 years. And unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, one of the things that happened in response to the Floyd situation was that um, it was more along the lines or of the spirit of a humanitarian response, meaning let's stop the bleeding, let's stop the acute trauma. And so you had this unprecedented wave of investment and resources that were thrown at the, at the issue. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the solutions were siloed, and they were rushed, and they were not in the spirit of or in the form of conflict and long-term systems change. And so right now you're seeing efforts in that particular field diminishing. So another way that people can get involved is to look for organizations in their area that are doing the long-term work and get involved there, volunteer a few hours a week, get to know what they're doing, understand the principles that are informing and driving their work. Um, right now, there's more organizations. There's about seven to 10,000 bridge building organizations across the country. Find one in your neighborhood, link arms with them, go to work. And as it pertains specifically to what I'm doing and One Million Truths, there's several ways that people can participate. The first is go to our platform at onemilliontruths.com and record your, an experience with racial and ethnic conflict. Doesn't matter your race or your ethnicity, your understanding, your proximity to these dynamics. Everybody in the country has a perspective and experience or opinion. So you can record your truth and upload it to our platform. From there, we're gonna take a database of a million or more authentic stories and we're going to analyze it with artificial intelligence. And as we do that, we'll actually be able to identify archetypes. We'll be able to identify people who are most likely to take action and those who might need a little longer uh, tail to, to, to lead them into action. We'll be able to map out complex systems and dynamics. There's so many things we can do, and all of that will lend itself towards new solutions that will bring community members together to design and then pursue and execute. That's fantastic. It's one of the coolest uses of AI I've heard. That's really awesome because you really could get a lot more information boiled down quicker and then get it out to people. Yeah. And it allows us to operate at the scale that I think we really need to yeah. at this point. It, it, it's right in line with this emphasis on education that you talked about a, a, a few minutes ago. And then, and what came to me was that, you know, the Buddha identified the three main causes of attachment, which is the main cause of suffering as being craving, aversion, and ignorance, but with ignorance being the main one, right? Craving and aversion are actually easier to work with because you yeah. see them happening, you feel them happening, but ignorance, you don't have a grip on, right? You don't have the information. And that was, you know, primarily the root form of ignorance that the Buddha identified as the, the, the false sense of, a, of an individual self, right? Yeah. That's kind of at the heart of it, but really ignorance in general about the fault, you know, the, the nature of what's going on, you could say, is, is a, a cause of huge suffering. And I, I think you would agree that conflict is like that, right? There's, there's a, a failure to see what's going on, you know, say what the other person wants, and what, what the nature of your own defense mechanisms are, you know, there's all, all of this that if it were really brought to light and if people were able to really see other people's positions, understand other people's lives, yep. and also yep. recognize where they were being self-centered and greedy, you know, that these conflicts would turn into more like disagreements that could be workable and, and better negotiated. So it yeah. does seem like this, uh, education this light bringing you could say you know doing ai and all of these is to is to identify part of the architecture of societal conflict that's happening across the world and to shine a light on that in the interests of um healing all of that all of that you know violent activity that that, that we're, ten, we're prone to yeah yeah well said i'll share really quickly that uh, based on my understanding and perspective at this point in time what gets expressed across racial lines is is typically uh, a source of conflict that has gone unresolved for a long period of time. And so it's kind of like a downhill slope. The longer a conflict goes to uh, goes unresolved, 
ultimately you're going to get to a point where it starts getting expressed across racial lines. So we're looking upstream and hoping to find ways to resolve conflict earlier um, and in a space that people are much more comfortable stepping into to participate in solutions. Um, and I'm really excited about this, this technology that we have access to because it puts us in a position to move from sensing and responding to predicting and preventing. Mm-hmm. And that's first ever. I like that you talked earlier about long-term solutions as well, because I think that's the, we need that viewpoint. We're not going to change the world overnight, but long-term education, and I believe it starts with early childhood education. That's a, that's a big thing, and my daughter is a kindergarten teacher. Uh, but we really need to we need to get children on the right path in terms of a lot of the things you're talking about. And I think that's what the One Million Truths sounds like. That you're providing a lot. That could be a school classroom, you know, lesson right there. You're right, Scott. One of our intentions is to develop a curriculum for K through yeah. 12 students. Yeah. And, and to do it in a way that is informed by a diverse um, set of points of views and thoughts and ideas. Um, mm-hmm. We don't want to be monotone. Uh, we, we certainly want to think far upstream and downstream and make sure there are enough voices that are contributing to anything that gets created to reduce the chances of opposition and, and resistance. Yeah. So I actually have a couple more questions about common. Let's let's shift over there for a minute. And um, in terms of the type of business professionals that come to you, at what stage of business do they do they start the process? And also at what stage of their own personal practice when they come to you? The thing that's been so cool about common is that we don't have an A to Z process. It's designed to meet people where they're at. And so over the 13, 14 years, we've worked with massively huge global corporations all the way across the board to an uh, ind- individual, uh, a new entrepreneur who's never tried to pull together an enterprise and operate it and execute it successfully. So it's been wonderful. And so we meet people where they're at. And sometimes it requires tending to their being <laughs> their humanness more than others. There's some folks we can jump in and we can start developing strategy and we can move right into execution. But our model is designed to be flexible and responsive and to not kind of force people down a single track that we just repeat over and over and over again. So it's very dynamic and it's been very diverse uh, on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. Paul, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about your experience since you've been with Common? Oh, it, it, it's been a great experience. It's, uh, you know, Mark has a very strong leadership. It's a values-based leadership around um, relationships and processes for really bringing, bringing a heart-based venture, you know, to life. And uh, it actually leads, it leads me to a, so I, I definitely recommend any, any um, one who's involved with a with a social enterprise, so a, a venture that has a, a social conscience to it, you know, and a social purpose to it, um, you don't have to be saving the world. Um, you just have to be saving something, <laughs> <laughs> and that could be yourself. <laughs> yeah, it could, it could be yourself. You know, saving in in, in a super caring way. Um, it could be saving money, but but you got to be doing something something <laughs> with that money too. Yeah. Um, if you're involved in a venture like that, or you're incubating a venture like that, and whether it's a as a solopreneur or as the the, the leader of a of an organization, uh, Common is a wonderful venture to join into. As Mark said, it's it's uh, organizations of multiple sizes and with very diverse uh, diverse industries and across the world. And the relationships there have been fantastic because interacting with people who are all over the world, Europe, the Puerto Rico, um, South America, um, the, the spirit and the shared intention around doing good on a, on a global, global level is incredibly inspiring and helpful. And, and it leads me to a question to you, Mark. So there, there's a great you know, values basis with everything you do. 
there's also some kind of basic kind of nuts and bolts. You know, this is how you market a company. This is how you do a business strategy. And I've gotten a lot of help from you, as many others have, because you've done that level of executive uh, consulting, you could you could say. Um, and then people have, you know, they have aspirations for their spiritual life and they have aspirations for their, you know, relational and emotional intelligence. So as you look at look at people and you look at the world and you, you've worked with hundreds of people, um, what do people need more? Do they need business training? Do they need spiritual development? Do they need emotional intelligence? What do people really need? <laughs> We need oh, all of it. We need all of it. People just need to be returned to who they actually are. Mm. We're resilient and we know how to do what we aspire to do with some help, of course. Um, and that's really the majority of my work and my interaction. This is helping people to return to who they already are. And, and that is enough. Mm. It's really enough. And I, I guess the, the cycle of advisory sessions um, is just really people practicing, coming in and out, in and out. And, and in advisory sessions, it's just a process of returning. Them. I'm oh. always... Yeah, I, I've always been fascinated by the Bodhisattva, you know, in, in this whole story. And, and you sound like one for sure. But it's like the, the concept of like helping, you know, there's always someone else that I can help or someone we can reach until we're done with every human being. We're not done. Is that sort of what your philosophy looks like? Pretty much. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, <clears throat> you know we all need each other and and we're all part of the process of helping us live a happy life <laughs> you know at the end of the day it's you live a happy life and and that can be challenging at time and everybody has a role to play in that and just imagine if more of us were just aligned and committed to that in, in a way that didn't have any of us feel like we were sacrificing other parts of who we are and what we're doing um, in ways that weren't, weren't great. But unfortunately, a lot of people think that tending to others in this manner that we're talking about is gonna cost them something. And in my experience, there really has never been a real cost <laughs> when you come down to it and when I'm honest about it. There's only gain, there's only gain. It's replenishing, replenishing, replenishing consistently. What are some practical things for our listeners that they can, you know, take the next step? And, and maybe it's like books that you recommend or classes or, you know, in terms of their own development, what can you recommend? Meditation. Okay. Sitting practice. First and foremost, you can't see it, but my mat and cushion are right there. It is, they are right by my desk and that's where they stay. Um, I, I found that the combination of sitting practice and then my work with my teacher and doing koan study have been the most powerful uh, things that I have done. And then I've supplemented with specific training and modality as, as needs have, have presented themselves. Um, get outside, find nature. Uh, I've moved. I now live back and forth between Europe and, and the States, as, as Paul shared, and I live basically next to a forest. And so I spend a couple hours a day in the forest. And what that has done for me is beyond my ability to describe. There is part of me from having been on the West Coast in Los Angeles for, for so long um, that had really gotten disconnected from nature. And I, I did not understand how important it is. So sit, get outside. Find, find an advisor that can you trust and can be trusted. Um, and then just open yourself up to any other forms of information, education you find helpful and necessary at any point in time. Great. Check, check, and check. <laughs> I have a great teacher right here. 
and I do live near a national park. So yeah. I, I think forest bathing is something really interesting, like what the trees are doing for us. And I love to meditate out there in the woods. It's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. I, I, there's a little bit of me that is remorseful that I had gotten so disconnected from nature. Great. Um, Paul, what do you, anything else on your mind today? Oh, this has been so rich. I'm, I'm still just, just absorbed in Mark's last few answers to yeah. <laughs> just his last few words the, the the field, you know, that he creates from his place of center is just re remarkable and, and really wonderful. So I, I really enjoyed the conversation. This is a real gift to our listeners. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. Um, we, maybe we can have you on down the road. This is really awesome. I think, you know, what we try and talk about every week, you just hit on a lot of it, just the, the intersection of these things, you know, between your professional and personal life. And you've really excelled at this. And, you know, tell us uh, before we go uh, uh, some of the websites where we can find you and how people can reach you the best way. Sure. Thank you, Scott. Uh, common.is, if you want to find me in the common world. So common.is, uh, that's our website. You can zip over there. And again, one million truths is one million truths with an S. So those words are spelled out. So one million truths.com. And would love to, to meet anybody who's resonating with this conversation and to work together and collaborate and see what we can do together. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, well, that was it. Thank you for listening to the Game of Zen podcast. Uh, as usual, we'd love for you to subscribe and share it with some of your friends. And also visit zenatwork.org and sign up for Paul's newsletter. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Mark. Thank you both. This has truly been a pleasure, and it's an absolute honor. And I will come back anytime if you'll have me. All right. R really appreciate it, Mark. And, and Scott, you know, Mark is, Mark is such a high-level performer of the game of Zen. I think <laughs> you might agree that he's our first entry into the game of Zen Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> MVP. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so much, guys. guys. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this exploration into Zen Buddhism and its transformative influence on work and life. We hope you'll subscribe, share, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. May your journey be one of continuous growth and mindful living. From all of us here at Game of Zen, wishing you peace and prosperity on your path ahead.